Welcome to episode 22 of the Genius of Thomas Sowell podcast. I'm your host, Alan Woolman. The music you are hearing is the prelude to Billy Joel's 1976 classic, Angry Young Man, and I'll explain later how it relates to today's topic. Today, we are discussing Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. We'll be talking about what Clarence Thomas has to say about Sowell, and also what Sowell has to say about Clarence Thomas. Justice Thomas has been in the news a lot lately. Ever since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade this June, and also issued other conservative rulings about gun rights, limitations on the power of the EPA, and others, Clarence Thomas has been in the spotlight. To some, he's a hero. To others, he's a supreme villain. In particular, abortion advocates are very angry with Clarence Thomas, with many on social media demanding his removal from the Supreme Court as well as other punishments, which I won't mention here, in order to keep our PG rating. And speaking of anger, Clarence Thomas himself was a very angry person in his youth. How do I know that? He admits it openly. At the old Parkland conference in Dallas this past May, he said this. And I was a little bit, and I was very angry about the race issue which is a bad combination. I mean, I was really angry. We were over at Harvard, um, Harvard Square. We tried to burn that down. And uh, so you, you can just see how angry we were. And it's a, that was a stupid thing to do. But hey, I was a, at the stupid age. And I was very upset about race and what we had done with race in the society. He also said this. When I finished law school and couldn't get a job in Georgia, That's another thing that ticked me off. I really had a lot of reasons to be mad at a lot of people. When I heard Justice Thomas talking about how angry he used to be, my mind immediately took me back to Billy Joel's song, Angry Young Man. I was only 14 years old when I fell in love with this song, and I wonder now if I could truly appreciate back then what Billy Joel was trying to teach us in his lyrics. I'd like to take a few minutes now to talk about that song, because I feel it sheds light on the role anger may have played for Clarence Thomas, Thomas Sowell, and for society in general. The song begins with this. There's a place in the world for the angry young man With his working class ties and his radical plans He refuses to bend, he refuses to crawl And he's always at home with his back to the wall And he's proud of his scars and the battles he's fought And he struggles and bleeds as he hangs on his cross And he likes to be known as the angry young man There's a place in the world for the angry young man With his working class ties and his radical plans He refuses to bend He refuses to crawl. He's always at home with his back to the wall. And he's proud of his scars and the battles he's lost. And he struggles and bleeds as he hangs on the cross. And he likes to be known as the angry young man. In this first stanza, Billy Joel is painting a picture of the angry young man. He's not quite working class, but he has working class ties, which most likely means that his parents are working class. 
but the angry young man is probably more educated than his parents, and he's full of radical plans. Plans to reshape society more in line with his vision of the world. That's how I read it. He refuses to bend. He refuses to crawl. So he's a stubborn and hard-headed type with a touch of paranoia. He's always at home with his back to the wall. So his enemies can't sneak up behind him, I assume. He's proud of his scars and the battles he's lost is a really interesting line. Because why would someone be proud of the battles they've lost? It must be proving something to the world. Perhaps that they're on the side of the angels battling the forces of evil, as Sowell might say. He struggles and bleeds as he hangs on the cross, and he likes to be known as the angry young man, conveys a sense of martyrdom. Now, why would someone like to be known as an angry young man? That seems odd to me. I mean, I wouldn't like people to think of me that way. Oh, that Alan, he's an angry guy. But our angry young man seems to relish in being thought of that way. Perhaps there's a sense of moral superiority that gets projected through anger. The second stanza continues. Give a moment or two to the angry young man With his foot in his mouth and his heart in his hand He's been stabbed in the back, he's been misunderstood It's a comfort to know his intentions are good And he sits in a room with a lock on the door With his maps and his medals laid out on the floor And he likes to be known as the angry young man Give a moment or two to the angry young man With his foot in his mouth and his heart in his hand He's been stabbed in the back He's been misunderstood. It's a comfort to know his intentions are good. And he sits in a room with a lock on the door, with his maps and his medals laid out on the floor. And he likes to be known as the angry young man. Billy Joel says we should give a moment or two to the angry young man, which I read as listening to him a little bit, but not too much. We can't take him too seriously. He's been stabbed in the back, He's been misunderstood. So he's been betrayed by his comrades in arms, it seems. And we're supposed to feel some comfort from the fact that his intentions are good, which I read as Billy Joel conveying a touch of sarcasm. Well, with all the trouble he's caused, at least he had good intentions. And he sits in his room with a lock on the door, with his maps and his medals laid out on the floor, further conveys the paranoia of our angry young man. I mean, who else puts a lock on his bedroom door? And what of those maps and medals? Well, our protagonist clearly sees himself as a type of warrior doing battle against the world. At this point in the song, Billy Joel switches to the future, where the angry young man has now matured and reflects on his life. I believe I've passed the age Consciousness and righteous rage I found that just surviving Was a noble fight I once believed in causes too I had my pointless point of view And life went on no matter Who was wrong or right I believe I've passed the age Of consciousness and righteous rage I found that just surviving was a noble fight. I once believed in causes too. I had my pointless point of view. And life went on, no matter who was wrong or right. 
Billy Joel tells us that he grew out of that angry young man stuff. No more consciousness of all the world's shortcomings, and no more righteous rage. Righteous rage, what a concept. Anger is one thing, rage is a whole other thing. Remember the Incredible Hulk? When he got angry, he didn't just yell, he smashed things. That's what rage is, it's uncontrolled anger. And righteous rage implies that your rage is justified, and it's okay to smash things. As Clarence Thomas told us, he tried to burn the place down. I'm not sure what he was angry about specifically, but he must have felt justified in his rage at the time. I found that just surviving was a noble fight. In other words, just living your life and doing the best you can is a worthy battle. One doesn't need to fix the whole world in order to feel they've lived a full life. I once believed in causes too. I had my pointless point of view. This reminds me of Sowell's concept of moral crusades, which we discussed in depth in episode three. That's what a cause is. It's a moral crusade of sorts. And all that moral posturing was kind of pointless in the end. And life went on, no matter who was wrong or right. The final stanza adds this. There's always a place for the angry young man With his fist in the air and his head in the sand And he's never been able to learn from mistakes So he can't understand why his heart always breaks And his honor is pure and his courage is well And he's fair and he's true and he's boring as hell And he'll go to the grave as an angry old man And there's always a place for the angry young man With his fist in the air and his head in the sand and he's never been able to learn from mistakes, so he can't understand why his heart always breaks. But his honor is pure, and his courage as well, and he's fair and he's true, and he's boring as hell, and he'll go to the grave as an angry old man. Two things jump out at me in this stanza. One is that despite all his flailing about and rabble-rousing, our angry young man is really just boring as hell. I guess he's just too predictable. He's a type. He's a cookie-cutter, angry young man, a dime a dozen. And he'll grow up to be an angry old man and die that way too. But Clarence Thomas, though he may have been an angry young man in his youth, did not grow up to be an angry old man. TMZ interviewed Thomas on the street getting into his car last year. Does this sound like an angry old man to you? He, he has a chance. He, I'm I, just a civil servant. I know he. Lance, 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 either, Lance, either retired. He, he got to be looking for some, some work a little bit. No, but you're a funny guy. What do you, what do you do? You just sort of stand around and photobomb people. No, no, I'm calling with TMZ. I know you. I'm just giving you hard. Okay, time. man. We love your work, though, man. You crack me up. Did you go to NYU? No, my sister did. Great school. Was you at law school there? No, she did. Um, she's a, she's a actually, she did journalism also. Yeah, but it's she a wonderful just, school. Yeah. So you go around bothering people? <laughs> no, no. Actually, we we find interesting people. <laughs> what did you have to What did you have to eat? I know you no, like no, steak no, dinner. No, no, no. Come on, man. Come on. So what changed in Clarence Thomas's life, which helped him outgrow his angry young man phase? Could it be that exposure to the writings of Thomas Sowell? contributed to this turning point? Perhaps it's just a coincidence that the same year Billy Joel released Angry Young Man, 
Clarence Thomas discovered and read his first Thomas Sowell book, Race and Economics. Let's hear what Justice Thomas has to say about how he met Sowell. Here's another clip from the old Parkland Conference. So a friend of mine who knew about this, he was a quadriplegic from polio and a very close buddy of mine, he calls me up in my office and said, Clarence, I'm reading this review in the Wall Street Journal. There's another black guy like you. His name is Thomas Sowell. (laughs) (laughs) And it's a review of his book, Race and Economics. I'll I'll bring it over tomorrow. And I said, no, I'll come get it. So I ran down and just like got this uh, book review by Michael Novak. And there it was. There was Tom Sowell. And I got his book eventually, read it after some trouble, read it like a, a thirsty person off the desert drinking water. And there it was. It was reconciled. Finally, somebody was telling the truth. And... The I went to St. Louis and this is 76 and 78. I go to St. I'm working at Monsanto. Someone says they know how passionate I am about this Thomas Sowell guy. And um, they mentioned that he's going to be at Washington University Law School, where he was in a, on a panel with Professor Ruth Bader Ginsburg. <laughs> and uh, so I go over and I follow the poor man around. He was trying to leave and I was a stalker and (laughs) I I admit it. And he signed my book. He autographed my book and looked at me kind of awkwardly. And I would see him again after I moved to Washington when a bunch of black staffers were giving him a hard time and I defended him. And he would come over to my office. I shared with three others and we would talk Uh, And he took my number and I took his calling him. You may as well just forget the number. If he gives it to you, just burn it. You'll never get him. Uh, I learned that the hard way. And but I can now. But back then he wouldn't. There's no way. And he called me. He took that number that I had given him and he called me to come to the Fairmont Conference. And that's how it started it. And that started a friendship that has lasted from 19, uh, the late 70s to, to the present, or maybe the 1980 to the present. So Clarence Thomas started out as a fan of Sowell's, and he even showed up with a book in hand, hoping for an autograph at a panel discussion with Sowell and Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was a professor at Columbia Law School at the time. Interesting coincidence that Thomas and RBG would later end up serving together on the Supreme Court for over 27 years. Justice Thomas mentioned Sowell several times during his interview at the Old Parkland Conference. In talking about the importance of the two-parent family in the black community, he says this. Fortunately or unfortunately, it's the same story, different day. It is probably um, farther down the road, uh, the auto wedlock birth rate wasn't where it is. We warned about that. Uh, Tom, Professor Soule constantly warned about uh, single-parent households and the damage that was going to do, and it has, particularly with poverty uh, and the, the, the sort of the pathologies that flows from, flows from that. 
Justice Thomas refers to the main concept from Sowell's 1995 book, The Vision of the Anointed, when he says this. The people that I have run into across this country, people assume that I've had difficulties when I've been around members of my race. It's just the opposite. The only people with whom I've had difficulties are white liberal uh, elites uh, who consider themselves the anointed and us the benighted, as Tom Sowell would say. Uh, I have never had issues with members of my race. Justice Thomas discusses a classic Sowellian theme when he talks about the difference between what the media says and what the reality is. And he mentions Sowell's 1984 book, Civil Rights, Rhetoric or Reality? Wouldn't you want to know the truth about economics? Why don't you want to know the truth? If you look at Tom Sowell's writings, look at Rhetoric and Reality. He's telling you, he's saying, look, here's what they're saying. Here's the reality. In the next clip, Thomas discusses how he learned to attack false premises from Sowell's writings. My quote this year that has become one favorite of mine, I got into Solzhenitsyn, and I don't know, I read all over, I tend to wander around, and it's one minute you're reading about the Vikings, the next minute it's Solzhenitsyn. And, um, and it's, he has this wonderful little short essay, Live Not By Lies. And that be the, it, that's sort of the, a different version of tell the truth. Live not by lies. And I think we have been allowing people to force us to live by their lies. That they say things that are obviously not true, obviously not supportable, and we take it as fact, and then we move from that. And Tom Sowell, if you look at him, he talks often about false premises. If you look at his interviews, he always attacks the premise. And much of my own opinions, the, the stare decisis issues, is attacking the false premises. And so, again, even if you take nothing away from my, the time I spend here, just live not by lies. Just read that Solzhenitsyn essay. You don't repeat lies. You don't, uh, 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 you don't uh, uh, tell other people things that you know are untrue. You don't give it wings. You don't give it a life. You end it. You tell the truth. In this last clip from Clarence Thomas, he offers us a powerful tribute to the intellectual genius of Thomas Sowell. He says this. And the beauty of Tom Sowell, I think he's a great man. I think he is, to me, one the single greatest intellectual alive. And... <clears throat> This, this conference is the one thing he wanted to happen. This is his dream. He is in his 90s. He is not where he was in that film that you saw. But his dream is for this conference. And having spent many, many, many hours with him, he's a man who doesn't lie. He doesn't want accolades for himself. He doesn't want awards. What he wants is he wants the truth. And he wants people he cares about to prosper. If you go to his house, you don't see it lined with awards. You don't see him uh, in fancy this or fancy that. If anything, he's up there typing another book. He usually have three or four going. He wants this country and people who look like him, who understand and fellow citizens to prosper. 
and he wants them to know the truth. Just read anything, any book of his. He always contrasts what people believe or what they, the myth with the facts. And uh, so I think one thing you can do to honor him, in addition to what you've done so far with this wonderful conference, is to live not by lies and not to tolerate it when you know it's not true. We all don't have time to do all the research that the, these brilliant economists have done, but there are things we know are not true and we don't stand up and stop it. And they get wings and they, they get lives of their own and this is how you wind up losing institutions. So live not by lies. It's a motto of mine uh, and at the court, that's why I get in trouble. I'm not gonna go along with this nonsense. If it's not true, that's a lie. So yeah, I admit that I have deviated from time to time from where the court is going, but if it isn't true, I'm not gonna go along with it. I think it's clear from these clips that not only is Justice Thomas a great admirer of Thomas Sowell, his life and his work have been deeply influenced by Sowell as well. Now that we've heard what Justice Thomas had to say about Thomas Sowell, let's hear what Sowell had to say about Thomas. But before I get to that, I'd like to make a few podcast announcements. Announcement 1. On July 12th, we picked three winners of the basic book's Sowell sweepstakes. They were Jonathan from Salina, Texas, Gopi Nathan from Wayne, New Jersey, and Cliff from Utica, New York. Congratulations to our winners. Each of them received these four Sowell books, Basic Economics, Intellectuals and Society, A Conflict of Visions, and The Thomas Sowell Reader. Stay tuned for another Basic Books Sowell Sweepstakes in the near future. Announcement 2. We're almost all out of the first edition of our Thomas Sowell quote post-it notepads. I only have about 40 pads left, so if you've been thinking about ordering them, now is your chance. They're $3 each, including postage and handling, and there are instructions in the show notes about how to order them. I have two pieces of good news about the post-it notes. The first is that we have redesigned the quotes with a crisper font and fresh new colors, and we'll be reprinting them as a second edition. The second is that our team of expert Sowellologists has dug up 50 additional Sowell quotes, and we will be releasing them as a third edition in post-it notepad format. So beginning around September 1st, you'll be able to order two separate post-it notepads, each with 50 quotes. Yes, dear listeners, get ready to amaze your friends and baffle your enemies with 100 Thomas Sowell quotes. They won't know what hit them. Announcement 3. If you are getting value out of this podcast and would like to support us, the best way is to tell your friends and family about it. Better yet, just tell them about Thomas Sowell. The more people read his books, the better the world becomes. Listening to this podcast is a good way to learn about Sowell, but the best way is to simply read his books. No podcast about Sowell can come even close to the man himself. 
But talking about Sowell's ideas is also fun and rewarding, and that's what we do here. So share the podcast if you feel inspired. Oh, and don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts if you can. The more ratings we have, the higher up we appear in search engines. And if you really want to support the work we are doing, we appreciate your becoming a patron at patreon.com. The money we raise there goes toward promoting the ideas of Thomas Sowell. You can find our Patreon page at patreon.com backslash Sowell Genius. In the show notes are examples of some of the ways we go about promoting Sowell's ideas. Now that we've heard what Justice Thomas had to say about Thomas Sowell, let's hear what Sowell had to say about Justice Thomas. As regular listeners of this podcast will know, my all-time favorite Sowell book is Intellectuals and Society, published in 2009. Tucked away in that great book, in a chapter called Filtering Reality, there's a subchapter called Fictitious People, which talks about Clarence Thomas in some detail. Sowell uses the story of Clarence Thomas as an example of how the media and the intelligentsia weave false narratives about certain people as a way to undermine their influence in society. Let's hear an excerpt of this section of the book and pause it at key points to discuss the ideas which Sowell is articulating. A contemporary public figure who had a fictitious personality created for him by the media is Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. The fictitious Clarence Thomas has been described as a loner, permanently embittered by his controversial Senate confirmation hearings, a virtual recluse in private life. A reporter for the Wall Street Journal called him Washington's most famous recluse. Justice Thomas was depicted in a New Yorker article as someone who can really talk only to his wife, and the couple's life appears to be one of shared, brooding isolation. Because Justice Thomas and Justice Antonin Scalia have voted together so often in Supreme Court cases, he has been variously described as a clone of Scalia by syndicated columnist Carl Rowan and a puppet of Scalia by a lawyer from the American Civil Liberties Union. Similar statements about Justice Thomas's role on the Supreme Court have been common in the media. According to Sowell, the media has portrayed Justice Thomas as both a recluse, totally withdrawn from other people, and as a puppet of Justice Antonin Scalia, always voting the way Scalia tells him to vote. Sowell continues. Those who have bothered to check out the facts, however, have discovered a flesh-and-blood Clarence Thomas, the exact opposite of the fictitious Clarence Thomas portrayed in the media. Reporters for the Washington Post, hardly a supporter of Justice Thomas, interviewed colleagues and former clerks of his, as well as consulting notes made by the late Justice Harry Blackman at private judicial conferences among the justices, and came up with a radically different picture of the man. Thomas is perhaps the court's most accessible justice, except to journalists. He is known to spot a group of schoolchildren visiting the court and invite the students to his chambers. Students from his alma mater, family members of former clerks, people he encounters on his drives across the country in his 40-foot Prevo motor coach, All are welcome. Thomas seems to have an unquenchable thirst for conversation. A planned 15-minute drop-by invariably turns into an hour, then two, sometimes three, maybe even four, according to interviews with at least a dozen people who have visited with Thomas in his chambers. Washington lawyer Tom Goldstein, whose firm devotes itself primarily to Supreme Court litigation, has met all the justices and has declared Thomas the most real person of them all. Far from being a recluse permanently scarred by his Senate confirmation hearings, 
Justice Thomas frequently goes back to the Senate at mealtimes, according to the Washington Post. Thomas is hardly a stranger in the Senate. He can be spotted in the Dirksen Senate office building cafeteria, eating the hot buffet lunch with his clerks. He is chummy with the women who cook and waitress. He has breakfasted among senators in their private dining room, just a whisper away from some of the lawmakers who virulently opposed his nomination. Who would have imagined that the U.S. Senate, the stage for Thomas's high-tech lynching as he angrily charged during his 1991 confirmation hearings, is where he enjoys meals? Others who have actually studied Justice Thomas and interviewed those who have worked with him or encountered him socially have likewise been struck by the difference between the public image and the man himself. He made a point of introducing himself to every employee at the court, from cafeteria cooks to the nighttime janitors. He played hoops with the marshals and security guards. He stopped to chat with people in the hallways. Clerks say Thomas had an uncanny ability to recall details of an employee's personal life. He knew their children's names and where they went to school. He seemed to see people who would otherwise go unnoticed. Stephen Smith, a former clerk, recalls an instance when Thomas, on a tour of the Maritime Courts in 1993 or 1994, was talking to a group of judges. There was this old woman standing there in one of those blue janitor's uniforms and a bucket, a black woman, Smith recalled, and she was looking at him, wouldn't dare go up and talk to this important guy. He left the judges there, excused himself, and went over to talk to her. He put out his hand to shake her hand, and she threw her arms around him and gave him a big bear hug. Sowell provides much evidence that Justice Thomas is anything but a recluse. According to everyone who has met him, Thomas is gregarious, accessible, and loves to get into conversations with people from all stations and walks of life. For me, the most striking fact mentioned is that Justice Thomas and his wife Ginny travel around the country in a 40-foot Prevost motorhome. Now, I didn't know what a 40-foot Prevost looks like, so I looked it up online and was surprised to learn that this is a massive motorhome, pretty much as big as they get. It's the largest motor coach that national parks will let in. And if you've ever been to campsites around the country where these motorhomes typically park, and I've been to a few, you know the type of people who travel in them. They're people people. They're people who enjoy meeting strangers and getting to know them. Everyone says in a job interview that they're a people person, but the people who travel by motor coach really are. Sowell continues. Among his eight colleagues, Thomas was similarly outgoing and gregarious. Justice Ginsburg said Thomas sometimes dropped by her chambers with a bag of Vidalia onions from Georgia, knowing that her husband was a devoted chef. A most congenial colleague, said Ginsburg of Thomas. Thomas took an especially keen interest in his clerks and often developed an almost paternal relationship with them. When he noticed the treads on Walker's car were thin, he showed her how to measure them for wear and tear. The next Monday, Walker recalled, he came in and said, I saw some great tires at Price Club. They're a good deal. You should really get them. And I'm sitting there thinking, here's a Supreme Court justice who's worried about whether my tires are safe. Many of Thomas's clerks have similar stories to tell. Another study chronicled Clarence Thomas's life away from Washington. Behind the wheel of his 40-foot RV, Clarence Thomas couldn't be happier. The 92 Prevo motor coach has a bedroom in the back, plush gray leather chairs, a kitchen, satellite television, and a computerized navigational system. It's a condo on wheels, he has said, a condo from which he observes the nation and, when he chooses, engages with fellow citizens. He is drawn mostly to small towns and RV campgrounds, national parks, and historic landmarks. 
Thomas has told friends he has never had a bad experience traveling by motor coach. Away from urban centers, he often encounters people who don't recognize him or don't care that he's a Supreme Court justice. He loves to pull into a Walmart parking lot in jeans and deck shoes, a cap pulled over his head. Plopped outside the vehicle in a lawn chair, he can sit for hours, chatting up strangers about car waxes and exterior polishes, sipping lemonade. Justice Thomas also gives talks to audiences of thousands at major universities, according to the Washington Times. But since he has seldom been seen at fashionable social gatherings of Washington's political and media elites, that makes him a recluse, as far as the intelligentsia are concerned. This was written 13 years ago. But is it still true? Well, according to Justice Sonia Sotomayor, who was appointed by Barack Obama the same year Sowell published Intellectuals and Society and has had 13 years to get to know Thomas, it's all still true. Sotomayor said this just two months ago. And so I may have used, and I have used as an example, my relationship with Justice Clarence Thomas. I suspect, maybe this is not true anymore, but I suspect I have probably disagreed with him more than with any other justice. That we have not joined each other's opinions more than anybody else. And yet, Justice Thomas is the one justice in the building that literally knows every employee's name, that they, every one of them. And not only does he know their names, he remembers their families' names and histories. He's the first one who will go up to someone when you're walking with him and say, is your son okay? How's your daughter doing in college? He's the first one that when my stepfather died, sent me flowers in Florida. He is a man who keeps, cares deeply about the court as an institution, about the people who work there, but about people. He has a different vision than I do about how to help people and about their responsibilities to help themselves. I've often said to people, Justice Thomas believes that every person can pull themselves up by their bootstraps. I believe that some people can't get to their bootstraps without help. They need someone to help them lift their foot up so they can reach those bootstraps. That's a very different philosophy of life. But I think we share a common understanding about people and kindness towards them. That's why I can be friends with him and still continue our daily battle <laughs> over our difference of opinions in cases. Wow. Listening to Justice Sotomayor praise Clarence Thomas in this way in front of an exclusively progressive audience is an almost surreal experience. These days, we're not used to political actors praising the character and personality of their ideological opponents. You have to admit, that was pretty darned cool of Sotomayor. Sowell turns his attention to the issue of whether or not Justice Thomas was ever a follower of Justice Scalia. He says this. What of Clarence Thomas's work as a Supreme Court justice? 
The fact that his votes and those of Justice Scalia often coincide says nothing about who persuaded whom, but the media have automatically assumed that it was Scalia who led and Justice Thomas who followed. To know the facts would require knowing what happens at the private conferences among the nine justices, where even their own clerks are not present. Despite sweeping assumptions that reigned for years in the media, a radically different picture emerged when notes taken by the late Justice Harry Blackman at these conferences became available among his papers. Author Jan Crawford Greenberg, who consulted Blackman's notes when writing a book about the Supreme Court, Supreme Conflict, found an entirely different pattern from that of the prevailing media vision. Moreover, that pattern emerged early, during Clarence Thomas's first year on the Supreme Court. In only the third case in which he participated, Justice Thomas initially agreed with the rest of his colleagues, and the case looked like it was headed for a nine-to-nothing decision. But Thomas thought about it overnight and decided to dissent from the views of his eight senior colleagues. As it turned out, Thomas was not alone for long. After he sent his dissent to the other justices, Rehnquist and Scalia sent notes to the justices that they too were changing their votes and would join his opinion. Kennedy declined to join Thomas's dissent, but he also changed his vote and wrote his own dissent. This was something that happened several times that first year alone. Some of Justice Blackmun's notes indicated his surprise at the independence of this new member of the court. So it turns out that Justice Thomas isn't the puppet and blind follower that some had claimed him to be. He seems more like an independent thinker who isn't afraid to stand alone from the crowd and chart his own path through controversial issues. In the recent Dobbs v. Jackson case, which overturned Roe v. Wade, Justice Thomas voted with the majority to overturn Roe, but he did not join the majority opinion drafted by Samuel Alito. He wrote his own opinion, called a concurring opinion, which is more evidence that Justice Thomas is a man who thinks for himself and doesn't just go along to get along. It's worth noting at this point that we know for sure there are at least two justices currently sitting on the Supreme Court who have been strongly influenced by the writings of Thomas Sowell. Justice Alito, because he told me so in his letter thanking me for sending him the Sowell post-it notes, and Justice Thomas, in his own words, played earlier in this episode. By the way, I sent several pads of post-it notes to all nine justices of the Supreme Court, and to date, have heard back by letter from both Alito and Thomas. I'm still waiting for a letter from Sotomayor. Hey, you never know. But what about Sowell himself? Was he also an angry young man the way Clarence Thomas was? I don't know for sure about that. But Sowell admits to being a devoted Marxist well into his 30s. And I've never met a hardcore Marxist who wasn't angry with the world in some way. Have you? This has been episode 22 of the Genius of Thomas Sowell podcast. Don't forget to check out the show notes. There are lots of useful links there to things mentioned in this episode. You can also find a link to the digital images of all 100 Thomas Sowell quotes, which you can order starting September 1st. Print them, share them on social media, however you see fit to spread the wit and wisdom of you-know-who. I'm Alan Woolen. Thanks for listening.